Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Allie. And yes, today we want to talk about the Word of God. I want to share with you my passion for the Word of God. And as I begin, I want to talk about a family matter, a Wheaton Bible Church family matter, because I want you to know that last weekend, tragically, there was a suicide in our church family. Suicide is not, I need to say this every time I talk about this, is not an unforgivable sin. It's a sin, but it is not an unforgivable sin. However, the consequences are absolutely devastating for the family. There's just ripples and circles that go on and on. And so I want you to know that we have some wonderful and capable people here at Wheaton Bible Church who have known this family and are moving into this situation and walking through the darkness with them, I want to ask you uh, to be praying for them. And I also want to say, if any of you are here today and you are feeling, whether you're watching online, whether you're here with us, if you are having a sense of feeling overwhelming grief or loss, get help. We have groups here at Wheaton Bible Church that are designed to help you with grief, to help you with loss, uh, people coming alongside you to walk with you uh, through these uh, difficult and, and dark times. And I want to invite you to step into that. You know, if we are honest, it's easy to get lost. It's easy to feel like you're drowning in the raging waters of hopelessness, unhappiness. It's easy to feel like you're drowning in isolation, loneliness, or, or defeat, or uh, disappointment. And as you know, today researchers tell us that this has almost reached uh, epidemic levels among our teenagers among our students and young adults here in the United States, even now reaching down into elementary age school children. But no one is immune. It's not a respecter of age. And as a matter of fact, it's a consequence of the fall. We live in a sinful, fallen world. And so here we are in the United States, and no matter how sophisticated our technology, no matter how great our affluence, the reality is left to itself. Apart from God, the human heart has an enormous capacity to self-destruct. Yet God, the creator of the ends of the earth, the one whose understanding no one can fathom. The one who, to our surprise and delight, we did not see this coming. Overflows in compassion, grace, mercy, kindness, and forgiveness. And so to that end, he has given us the Bible. Do you know what the Bible is? The Bible is God's lifeline. 
It's the rope he throws us in order that we can stay connected to him while our rescue is in progress. Because if the Bible is anything, it is the book of hope. It reverses our our feelings of drowning, feelings of being overwhelmed, uh, uh, feeling like we can't get up in the day or we're just not going to make it. And it generates in us because of the supernatural power of the Word of God. A shalom. A joy, a hope. And so today, I wish for you a love for the Bible. This is week number three of my four-week concluding series as I wrap up my ministry here at Wheaton Bible Church. Four weeks ago, I said my wish for you is that you would be confident in the character of God. Last Sunday, I said my wish for you is that you would have joy in the mercy of God. And today, my wish for you is that you would love the Word of God. And I want to talk about that love being characterized by two things. A respect for the Bible and a hunger for the Bible, a respect for the authority of the Bible and a hunger to feast on the food of the Bible. And I'm going to spend most of my time today talking about respect for the authority of the Bible and I want to tease that out with you. So would you grab your Bibles, access them and turn with me to Paul's second letter to Timothy. The Apostle Paul is speaking to this young pastor named Timothy. Timothy is Paul's protege. Paul has a lot to say to Timothy, so we have two letters in the New Testament, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, addressed to this young pastor. And in the section we're going to look at, beginning in chapter 3, Paul wants Timothy to know. He wants to learn. He wants Timothy to learn about the role of the Bible in the church and in life. So, out of respect for the authority of the Bible, will you stand with me as I begin reading in verse 14 of 2 Timothy chapter 3? But as for you, that is, as for you, Timothy. Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, not just Scriptures, but Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead and in view of his appearing and his kingdom. Now notice Paul is ramping up the intensity of what he's saying to Timothy. I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage 
with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And that's God's word, and you may be seated. And I want to say to you with everything in me, boy, do we need the man, oh man, do we need this today. Paul is telling Timothy that the most important thing about the church is the preaching and teaching of God's word. The Bible, because it's the Bible that determines everything else in the church. I mean, if we get the Bible right, we're a long way to uh, uh, getting everything else right. But if we get the Bible wrong, we're just spinning our wheels and everything else fails. Yet today, what are people saying? Today, they're saying the teaching and preaching of God's word is old school. It's unnecessary. Uh, and we need to keep sermons short, we need to keep them light, and they need to be full of stories. And what they do is ignore the word careful, careful instruction in chapter 4 and verse 2. So people say uh, today what's important is liturgy, what's important is music, what's important is small group discussion. And there's way too much talking from the pulpit. Now, of course, small groups and music and and liturgy have a wonderful, vital role. But that is not Paul's point here. That is not what is central to the church. So he says in chapter 4 and verse 1, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared. Uh, Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience. And here it is Careful instruction. Careful instruction. Now why, Paul? Why this charge? Why is the word of God central? Well, he just answered that in verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed. Note all. Now Paul is talking here about the Old Testament, but in other passages in the New Testament... Uh, the New Testament is called Scripture. So when Paul says all Scripture, for our purposes, it's both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he's not saying a part of the Scripture. He's saying every aspect of Scripture. I mean, think about that. Every name and every single genealogy. Every historical fact, every historical city, every historical situation. All the poetry, all the prophecy. uh, What is it? It's God-breathed, or or literally uh, breathed out by God. Uh, In other words, uh, the Bible is divinely inspired by the Spirit of God who worked in uh, uh, servants of God and gave us the 66 books that make up uh, the Word of God. And so we can say today that the Bible in its original manuscripts is without error. And because uh, the, the debates among t- in textual criticism, the science of uh, uh, manuscript study, uh, are usually about letters, uh, we, what we have today is the inerrant word of God. What is the Bible? 
The Bible is the inerrant voice of God to you. Because he loves you so much, he wants to speak to you. And therefore, the church is a community formed by God's word. Governed by God's word, regulated by God's word. It's the word that makes the church unique, right? So we're not a church because of our building. We're not a church because of our parking lot or clean restrooms. Uh, we're not a, a church because of particular ethnicity or particular uh, language or, or music. Uh, we are a church because we have been formed, regulated, and we are governed by the Word of God. And by the way, I want you to know every single one of our musicians deeply believes this. So Paul says to Timothy in chapter 4, I charge you to preach the Word and carefully... Because he tells us here in chapter 3, just before that, God's word is without error. So healthy, I mean biblical churches, prioritize the careful teaching of the word of God. And because you are the church, this building isn't the church. If the building... Uh, burns up we're still the church because you are the church I wish for you a profound respect for the authority of God's word now I would say uh, and have said that I know I'm not a great preacher and on some Sundays I go home and think to myself I'm not even a good preacher well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. That was really good. <laughs> but I will tell you, for 27 years, week in and week out, I have spent the bulk of my week. Early on, it was Sunday morning, Sunday night. A couple of years later, I added uh, the men's huddle. Uh, that was a long time ago. I have spent the bulk of my week in sermon preparation, being careful in whatever context I'm speaking in, to preach God's word. It's Paul's charge to Timothy. With great patience and careful instruction. Now, let me take this a step further. So we respect the authority of God's word because it's inerrant, uh, but rather than getting into theoretical reasons uh, why we do that, I, I want to talk about functional reasons why we should respect the authority of God's word. And it all has to do with how the Bible forms us and what Paul tells us in these verses around verse 16. So first of all, Paul tells us that the Bible saves us. In the preceding verse, uh, the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation. Now, I want to illustrate this with a really cool passage in the Old Testament. So turn with me in your Bibles way back to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37 is a famous passage because it records for us Ezekiel, the Old Testament prophet's vision of the valley of dry bones that come to life. It's all quite supernatural. 
And so I want you to read with me beginning in verse 1 of Ezekiel chapter 37. The hand of the Lord was on me. And he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, he's speaking to Ezekiel, God is speaking to Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel's answer next is a little anemic. I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. And where we're looking for an answer, of course. Verse 4, then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones. Now notice what comes next. Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. And now Ezekiel is preaching. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Now get the picture. He's preaching to bones. There's bones. And then he says in verse 7, so I prophesied. Now all prophecy, uh, or to talk about prophesying in the Old Testament, uh, as well as in the New Testament, is both to uh, talk about the future, predict the future, but it's also to tell the truth. So prophesying here is another form of preaching, and it's got both a present in a future aspect. So as I'm preaching, as I commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. And I looked, and the, I mean, this is crazy, and the tendons and flesh appeared on them, and the skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he, that is God, said to me, Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man. And say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied, I'm preaching as he commanded me and breath entered them and they came to life and stood upon their feet, a vast army. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there to, to, to experience this uh, a vision? I mean, it's all quite remarkable. I want to ask two questions of what we've just read. How did this happen? Well, it happened because God gave these dry bones breath. As a matter of fact, the word breath is the exact same word used in verse 1, translated spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit. So when we are reading that God gave these bones breath, God is giving them the Holy Spirit. He is giving them life. They're all synonyms. But then we've got to ask the second question, well, how in the world did God give them the Spirit? Life. Breath. And the answer is by the preaching of the word. Hear the word of God. So Ezekiel is an Old Testament illustration of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. It is the word of God that saves. 
I came to Christ because people began to talk to me about Jesus and I decided to read through the Gospel of Mark when I was all alone in my college dorm room and someplace in the middle of Mark, I gave my life to Jesus Christ because I could not deny the person and, and work of Jesus. We do not make up our own way to heaven. The Bible teaches that there is one way. This side of the cross through faith in Jesus Christ who loves us so much he gave his life was raised from the dead so that the moment we believe in Jesus he takes the burden of our sin on himself and he gives us his righteousness. As a matter of fact, if you are here today and you are a believer in Christ, the way you became a believer in Christ is by the word of God. Activated by the spirit of God, which points us to the son of God. So we might become the people of God. It's Ezekiel 37 and 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now, a pastor by the name of David Platt tells a story. Uh, a missionary is sharing about Jesus in, in another country with a man. And this missionary at this particular moment has his Bible opened and he's reading different verses from the Bible uh, to this man. And the man says, oh, well, that's very interesting. But you, do you know the pages of your book are just beautiful? And they would be great for rolling cigarettes. And the missionary is equal to this. And he says, fine, I will give you my Bible if you promise that before you tear out a page to roll your cigarette, you read the front of that page and the back of that page. And I want you to start with the Gospel of Matthew at the beginning of the New Testament. And the guy said, I'll do it. So some time goes by, and they get back together, and you know what this guy says to the missionary? He says, I smoked my way through Matthew. <laughs> I smoked my way through Mark. I smoked my way through Luke. But when I, when I came to John 3.16, I gave my life to Jesus. How cool. And Platt tells us the guy's a pastor today. Still smoking. Still smoking. <laughs> now, now here, wait a minute. I don't hear any pages being ripped out. Do you, do you know the power of the word of God? It is the word that has saved each and every one of us. Amazing. Second, Paul tells us in these remarkable words, uh, verses that it's the word that, that teaches us. What does it teach us? It teaches us about uh, this crazy notion that we as Christians affirm uh, the, that there is a father, that there is a son, and that there is a Holy Spirit, three gods in one. And the Bible teaches us about that. The Bible teaches us about how we walk as followers of Jesus Christ, what that looks like, how we handle trials and discouragement and difficulty, how we handle uh, temptations, 
which are all around us. The Bible teaches us what it means to be the church because it's really easy to get off track. One of my favorite quotes from an early American pastor, theologian, Jonathan Edwards, goes like this. The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which the soul can be satisfied. Now think about that. The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which the soul can be satisfied. The Bible teaches you how to enjoy God. How to love Him. How to serve Him. How to tell others about Him. How to stand up for Him in loving winsome ways. Uh, the Bible is useful for teaching. Let's go on. It equips us. The Bible equips us, Paul tells us, uh, so that we will live a life and not spend our time, talent, and treasure merely on our, ourselves. What a small way to live, that everything in your life is about you. The Bible equips us that I... Um, I need to back up. Where am I? Okay, I'm going to, I don't want to miss any of this, so I'm going to move forward, and I'm going to talk about rebuking, I'm going to come back to, uh, to a, equipping in just a second. So do you see here that the Bible rebukes us? Paul goes on and says it corrects us and it trains us for righteousness. Um, uh, let me illustrate it this way. Maybe you have one of these cars or you've been one of these cars that have the uh, sensors when you go out of the lane you're supposed to be driving in. It electrocutes you. <laughs> there it goes again. I want you to think of the Bible as a divine sensor. You're drifting. You're drifting. And so to the extent we uh, stay under the authority uh, of God's word and, and uh, take in the teaching of God's word and, and engage in self-feeding throughout the week and in our, our small groups and, and whatever, it's the God who points out, hey, you're drifting here, you're drifting there. Sometimes he whispers, sometimes he shouts at us. But God has given us the Bible to rebuke us, to correct us, to, to train us in righteousness in order to protect us, to help us stay in our lane, to stay focused, to give ourselves to things that matter most, to, to change us. Now let me go back to equipping. And here Paul continues and he tells us uh, the Bible equips us. Now the football season has started. And there isn't a single football player in the country that will run out this season onto the field without his equipment. A football player needs his equipment. Now notice Paul uses the same word. What is the Bible? The Bible is your equipment. The Bible uh, uh, equips you to play defense and offense. The Bible is our uh, spiritual equipment so we can uh, live life uh, to the glory of God and honor Him and, and live for Him. 
You know, Paul picks up the same theme in Ephesians chapter 6. When in Ephesians chapter 6, he's talking about spiritual warfare, our stand against Satan, and he talks about the armor of God. And twice, when he's talking about the armor of God, he discusses the word of God. First, the word of God is a belt of truth. Second, uh, it's a sword of the spirit, or as he says, uh, the word of God. And you know what, the, what that means for us? Why does Paul say it? Uh, Paul says this uh, because he knows that Satan's primary scheme against us isn't to possess us, but to deceive us. To deceive us. So God gives us the word, because Satan wants to come along and say, hey, you really don't need God. Or I know you've been really busy, and it doesn't matter that you haven't read the Bible in two months. Been to church in a year? Or watched online? You know, uh, you've got a lot going on in your life, so if you feel like doing it, you know, actually, it, it, it's okay. And... Satan's strategy isn't to plant, leave fang marks in your flesh so much as he is, his strategy is to plant lies in your heart. So it's Ephesians 6 and 2 Timothy chapter 3 that tell us that it is the word of God that enables us to stand against Satan, defense, and to live a life of offense uh, by serving him and living for him and laying out our, down our life for him. Friends, hear me. Nothing, nothing in the church is more important than the word of God. So I wish for you a love for the Bible. Rooted in respect for its authority. Now let me go on. Second, I wish for you a love for the Bible rooted in your personal hunger for the Bible. Your desire to feast on the supernatural food of the Bible. And what I want to do now is I want to leave this primary passage in the New Testament in 2 Timothy on the role of the Bible and go to a primary passage in the Old Testament. And I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1, the very first of the 150 Psalms. And let's pick it up by reading beginning in verse 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but instead delights in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers, but not, 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 not so are the wicked. They are like chaff, these little grains of nothingness that the wind blows away because they're lightweight. 
Now look at verse 2. When your life is over and you're lying in a grave or your ashes are in a crypt or whatever, I wish if you're in a grave that your marker would say, here lies a person who was a Psalm 1 verse 2 person. It says, her delight was in the Lord. He meditated on the word of God day and night. I wish that as you travel through your life, you would be known for your love for the Bible, your hunger for the Bible, that it's your delight and that you are are a person given to meditation. Now, let me talk about meditation. What is meditation according to the Bible? It's not like Eastern religions' uh, concept of meditation, which is an emptying of your mind. In the Bible, which is very different, it's filling your mind with the Word of God. Grabbing hold of promises or or, or prophecies or, or, or the teaching of the Bible and pressing them down into your soul. You know, if worry is the inability to let go in your mind of a bad thing and you just keep perseverating, Meditation is the ability to cling to the promises, the good things of the Bible. Now, you know we all meditate, right? When you're playing a video game, you're meditating. When you're listening to your boss or your coach, you're meditating. When you're working really hard to prepare a meal according to a particular difficult recipe, you're meditating on that recipe. When you're learning to drive, we hope you're meditating. Because meditation is taking what you're seeing, it's what you're hearing, it's what you're reading and thinking about it. That's what the word means. You're chewing on it. You're, you're thinking about it. And, and sometimes uh, that, that's conscious, sometimes it's uh, unconscious. And so meditation is thinking about the Bible and how it relates to your life. What it means uh, for your life. And according to Psalm 1, which, by the way, is the gateway to the other 149 psalms, meditation is the key to understanding those psalms. Meditation is the key to understanding the rest of Scripture. Meditation is the key for your spiritual life. People who respect the authority of God's Word are people who hunger for God's Word, and the way we satisfy our hunger for God's Word is by thinking about it. Chewing on it. And in verse 2, we have this Hebrew idiom, day and night, which means regularly. On Sundays and, and, and through the week. And by the way, I hope you realize that's what enabled meditation is what enabled Abraham to get over the hump of this uh, uh, bizarre, awful command God gave Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. Meditation enabled him to get over that hump. How do we know that? Because Hebrews chapter 11 tells us Abraham reasoned that God was able to raise him from the dead. 
Meditation is what enabled Joseph to say to the very brothers that betrayed him, sold him into slavery, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, intended it for good, because Joseph through his life had meditated his way to a firm conviction in the sovereignty of God. And then you take Joshua, the very first general of the entire Israeli army, a man who is going to be time-starved, a man who is going to see his soldiers fall in battle, a, a, a man who's going to be under enormous pressure. And what does God tell Joshua to do? Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate it. Here's the idiom, idiom again, day and night. So that, and Joshua, it doesn't matter how busy you are, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then, then Joshua, you will be prosperous and successful. You know, when I read Joshua 1.8, I have no excuse to not read the word of God because I'm busy. It's what God commands Joshua to do, to meditate. You know, meditation is what made Ruth loyal. It's what made Esther courageous. It's what made David a giant slayer. It's what made Solomon so very wise. And when we get to the New Testament, it's what made the young teenage virgin Mary so wonderfully submissive to the strange will of God so that she said, be it unto me as you say. You have spoken, God, I accept it. Now the question is how? Or, or how do we meditate? Or, or what does meditation look like? And let me just tell you the short answer is asking questions. That's what all thinking is. I, I've read books on, on thinking and, and good thinkers just ask questions and they have specific questions. It's how you advance in your career. It's how you do anything uh, with success. You're wrestling with questions. And again, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously. 500 years ago, the Protestant reformer Martin Luther said uh, you're a long way down the road in meditation if you come to a particular passage in the Bible, and you ask of it four questions. And I want to give you Luther's questions. And question number one is, what is it teaching? What is this passage teaching? Question number two is, what can I adore about God here in, in this passage? Question number three is, is there a sin that's being revealed that I need to confess? And then the fourth question is, what should I ask for? So you've got teaching, you've got adoration, you've got uh, confession, you've got supplication, or T-A-C-S. Luther, the great reformer, said four questions to help you meditate on a passage. So let's take Psalm 1. You know, well, what is Psalm 1 teaching? It's teaching us that meditation is the key to your spiritual life. And with everything within me, I want to call you to be a person that thinks about God's word. 
as you read, as you listen to God's word. Uh, what should I adore? I should adore the fact that, that God has given me his word, that he loves me that much. He's given me the lifeline. Well, what do I need to confess? Well, duh, my spiritual laziness that I get out of my lane so quickly. You're drifting. And what should I ask for? Well, according to Psalm 1, this beautiful metaphor, I should ask that God would make me a tree, not shaft. And you know, don't you, by the way, as I, I conclude now, that there was only one person that ever lived out the first three verses of Psalm 1 perfectly, and his name is Jesus. As a matter of fact, if you study the Gospels and the life of Jesus, you are blown away by the reality that meditation was so central to the life of our Savior, God himself. And there's a lot of ways we know that, but one of the ways is that when Jesus is in his moment of greatest agony as he's hanging on the cross, preparing to die in our place for our sins, Jesus is meditating on the word of God, specifically Psalm 2, because he quotes out loud, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Why is the word of God and meditation so central to Jesus? Because Jesus is voluntarily becoming shaft so that you and I might become trees that bear fruit to the glory of God. And so I want to say to you this morning, brothers and sisters, you students, the key to developing a hunger for the word of God is seeing the mercy of God. And so we meditate on the mercy of God, the humility, the submission, the surrender, the sacrifice of, of Jesus. And that's what gets you to delight. The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which your soul can be satisfied. And I can say to you that after 27 years of ministry, I hope you know that I believe nothing, nothing when it comes to our church and our lives is more important than a love for the Bible because activated by the Spirit of God, it points us to the Word of God and that's God's way you and I become people of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So, Father, we are amazed that you have given us your word. I, I think of how your word continues to rescue me in so many different difficult moments in life. How it exposes my shortcomings, how it buoys me and comforts me uh, when I need to be comforted. We thank you today for the Bible because the Bible teaches us about Jesus. And we praise you and we honor you and we exalt you because you are the great king. Amen.